If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, we'll, we'll read a few verses kind of at the end of Matthew chapter 19. The bulk of our time today we'll spend in Matthew chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those that's in the pew rack in front of you. It's not stealing. We're offering it to you. And so we want to be sure that everyone has a Bible. That's our gift to you if you don't have one. So feel free to take one of those. While you're turning there, let me begin with this today. Uh, about a month or so ago, maybe it was five or six weeks or so ago, um, I was at a church member's house for breakfast. One Saturday morning, several of our young families were together on a Saturday morning for breakfast, and, um, and down in their basement, they had a papa shot. Do you know what a papa shot is? Yeah, man, it's that little basketball game. It's kind of like an arcade game where you... You, where you got a couple of hoops up there, and then the, when you shoot the hoop, the ball slides back down to you. It's got net on the side. You know what I'm talking about. You see those in arcade games, right? And so while all the adults of these young families, these are church member families, all the adults, moms and dads, were kind of upstairs um, hanging out. Uh, Pastor Alex was downstairs with the kids, and we were playing some Papa Shot, you know? And so at first, I was just kind of there because balls would miss and they would fall outside the net. And so I was just kind of the gopher making sure that the, they would get the ball and that sort of thing. But it was just a matter of time before one of these little kids said, hey, Pastor Alex, do you want to play me in a game of Papa Shot? I'm like, absolutely, I want to play you. Thanks for asking. And, and so here's what you need to know. This was not like the typical full-size Papa Shot that you see in other places, because this was in, in the basement. It was more of like a medium-sized Papa Shot. And so here's what happens is we step up, we hit the button to start the buzzer, because it's how many hoops can you make? You're both going at the same time, right? Got two hoops, both of you are shooting. So how many hoops can you make in 60 seconds, right? And so he hits the buzzer. And this kid, I mean, again, it's little, little basketballs, little hoop. He's got both hands. And, you know, it's like he's doing the, like the hold, like it's taking everything he's got, all the momentum, his thrust, everything he can. And so here's what I'm doing. I'm just like uh, laying it into the hoop. <laughs> Take a basketball, lean over, lay it into the hoop. So I won handily. It was awesome. Uh, so, so you know it was just a matter of time before I heard this. Hey, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. And so here's what we learned very early in life is that fairness matters, that, that you and I are, are, are wired for fairness. This is a concept that we learn at a very young age, you fast forward a few years and you get to really what is now late elementary school, early middle school, and you get that first rite of passage, which is owning the first cell phone. And parents, you, you know what I'm talking about here. Here's what happens is there's that one little punk kid that gets one in fourth grade and then your kid comes home and is like, well, Johnny's got a cell phone. I need a cell phone. And you're like, you're not getting a cell phone until you can afford one for yourself. You know, like you give him that whole speech. And so that other parent's ruining it for you because your kid's coming home. It's not fair. It's not fair. And then you get into high school, and, and then, man, in the classroom, you get exposed to the dreaded group project. Teens, do you know what I'm talking about? If you had to work on a group project yet, if you, if you haven't gotten there yet, it happens somewhere at least around sophomore, junior, senior year. Always happens in a group project, right? Three or four of you are working on the project. One person does the work. The other three get the credit. Right? Life's not fair. This is what happens. 
or you make the same grades, you have the same GPA and, as another kid in your school, and you're both trying to get into the same school, and one gets in and the other doesn't, and it's not just with kids, and not just with teens, and not just with college kids. We, we become adults, and the problems just get bigger, the issues get bigger, and we start talking about equal pay and equal rights and all kinds of stuff because fairness matters to us. And so we do all of these things, but here's what happens to each one of us, and it happens earlier, but at some point in life, here's what you figure out, right? We all eventually figure out that life is not fair. Like life is not fair. The race isn't necessarily always won by the fastest. The better team doesn't always win. The better employee isn't the one that always gets the promotion and gets the raise because life isn't fair. And here's what begins to happen when we get exposed to this is that the next natural thing that we do is then we ask the question is, where's God in all of this? Like, is he not paying attention to what's going on? Like, does he not realize that good things are happening for bad people and then bad things are happening, you know, to good people? Is he not paying attention? Is he not listening? Does he not have any control? Because this isn't fair. We, we all go there. And so we begin to wonder, is God fair? At one point, the disciples themselves questioned if Jesus was fair. And the story begins at the end of um, Matthew chapter 19, it's actually this whole object lesson. There's a, a real story, a real conversation that happens with the disciples, and then he tells them a parable. And it starts with the story. This is a real-life story of where Jesus is out ministering with his disciples, and it's the story of the rich young ruler. There was a rich young man. We don't know a ton about him. We know that he was probably a Jewish guy. He was young, likely in his 20s, and he had a lot of great wealth and a lot of great responsibility. And he was yearning for more in life, and so he comes to Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 19, he has a dialogue with Jesus, beginning in verse 16, and he asks Jesus this question. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So as much as power and prestige and money as this guy had, he knew there was something bigger. It was eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And what Jesus tells him, well, you got to keep the commandments. You, you got to honor your mother and your father, and you, you can't kill anybody, and you can't cheat, and you can't steal, you can't lie, all of those things. And the, the guy says, that's great news because I've done that. In fact, since I was a young man, I haven't violated any of those commandments. And so Jesus says, okay, that's awesome. How about this? Go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the passage tells us that the young man went away sad because he had a lot of wealth. Now, here's what's interesting. I, I wish we knew the answer to this, because we don't, but I've often wondered, like, did he just go away sad because he knew he had a lot of wealth, but he did go sell everything and follow Jesus? Or did he just go away sad and cling to his possessions? We don't know. We won't know the answer to that on this side of heaven, but I think most scholars and myself would probably assume that this man didn't love Jesus' answer because he had a ton of wealth, and so he did go away sad, and he did not end up selling everything and following Jesus. And so this prompts, the disciples are standing there when this exchange happens, right? This guy goes away sad, and it prompts Jesus to use this as an object lesson. And so here's what happens next. Jesus turns to his disciples after this 
conversation with the rich young man goes down. He says to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. To which the disciples stop and they go, wait, what? Are you kidding me? Is anybody going to get into heaven then? I mean, if you're saying it's this difficult, does anybody get in? And in fact, I don't have time to, to really unpack it all this morning, but some scholars believe that the disciples believe that since Jesus was coming back to restore um, uh, his kingdom on earth, like he was going to be a king, not in heaven, but a king on earth, that several of them uh, thought or imagined that one day when he established that kingdom, well, that they would all be in the palace with Jesus and they themselves would be wealthy. And so now Jesus is addressing the issue of wealth and saying, hey, it's hard for rich people to get into heaven. And so they're like, wait, what? How can you even get in then? And there's a guy named Peter, and we talk about Peter a lot. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Have you ever been in a class or a Bible study or Sunday school or something like that, and there was always somebody in the class that was willing to ask the question that everybody else was thinking, but everyone was afraid to ask? That's Peter. Peter's the one that just speaks up. And so here's what Peter, Jesus is saying, it's hard for rich people to get into heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle. And then Peter says this, see Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, Jesus, my name's Peter. I don't know if you know this, but I left a very prosperous fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. I left that behind to come and follow you. And now all of a sudden you're talking about how difficult it's going to be to get in. And we've been following you around for a few years. Like surely there's some sort of reward for all of this, for all of this sacrifice that we've been making. We've left friends. We've left family behind. We've left jobs behind. What is the reward for all of this? This is what Peter's asking. What am I going to get out of all of this? And here's what Jesus says, gives him this great paradox. He says to Peter, hey, Peter, you'll get your reward one day when you get to heaven. You're going to have it. But, but let me tell you this, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus kind of gives him this little riddle, this little paradox. And because this is a teaching moment, and he's instructing his disciples, as Jesus often does. He tells them a parable, which is a made-up story, something that didn't necessarily really happen, but he tells them a story to try to make a point. And so now he's going to share a parable with them of the laborers in the vineyard, beginning in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. This parable starts like this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, here's what you need to know a little bit about the culture during the day. We can assume for a minute, Jesus is just telling a story here, but this is some sort of wealthy vineyard owner. He probably makes wine. They drank a ton of wine back in the day. This guy's got a lot of grapevines on his property, and he's going out, it says, in the morning. The Jewish work day started at 6 a.m. and went to 6 p.m. They worked half days. <laughs> they just worked the first half of the day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., a 12-hour shift from sun up to sundown. 
And so the picture that we get is this guy, we don't know if it's, it's harvesting season, he's got a lot of grapes to pick, we don't know if it's pruning season, we just know he's got this big vineyard, he needs some people to work in it, and so we assume he goes out at 6 a.m. in the morning, and he goes to the local marketplace. I think we have a place like that here where like day laborers hang out and you, if you need some guys to, to help you can drive by and agree to pay him a little bit for an hour. I'm sure there's a place like that in, in Lawrence. And so this is where this guy goes. He goes to that place. He finds some guys and he makes an agreement with them. Look at verse 2. It says, he finds these laborers at 6 a.m. and he agrees with them to pay them a denarius a day. Now, a denarius was an amount of money and And it was what, during this time period, what Roman soldiers made on a daily basis. It was kind of the stipend of a Roman soldier. And that's what set the daily wage. Whatever Roman soldiers got paid, uh, whatever their daily stipend was, is what determined kind of for uh, that area and that society the the daily wage. And so this owner goes at 6 a.m. to to the day laborer place. He picks up some guys, makes an agreement. They have a contract. They shake hands on it. I'm going to pay you what a Roman soldier gets paid. Let's call it a hundred bucks. Let's just try to bring it into our day and time. Let's say he just, he goes, I'm going to pay you a hundred dollars a day to work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. in my field. Do we have a deal? Great. Now let's go to work. So he sends him into the vineyard. Here's what happens next. Going out about the third hour, which would be 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. So they went. So now it's 9 a.m., and he he doesn't have a contract with this group of guys, but he's got more grapes to pick, more vines to prune, whatever the case may be. He's got a lot of work. And so three hours later, he goes back. There's still guys there. I need help. I'm going to hire them. But instead of agreeing to pay them a denarius for the day, he goes, I'll just pay you whatever's right. We'll just settle up at the end of the day. Sounds like a pretty good plan. So those guys go into the field, they start working. Going out again about the sixth hour, which is noon, going out about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., the owner does the same thing. And about the 11th hour, okay, this is 5 p.m., there's one hour left of of sunlight, one hour left to work. He goes out the 11th hour, finds other guys standing around and says to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. And he goes, oh. I've got plenty of work. You guys go out into the vineyard too. It's a good story so far. It kind of makes sense for us. The guy's got a lot of work. He keeps hiring people all day long. So the start at 6 a.m., then he hires more guys at 9 a.m., then he hires more guys at noon, at 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. Okay, one hour left to work. And here, here's what happens. We get to the end of the work day in verse 8. So the shift's over. The evening comes along. The owner of the vineyard says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. And look at how Jesus sneaks the paradox into the parable. He says, beginning with the last up to the first. So so let's pay the guys who started it at 5 p.m., these guys that have only been here for an hour, let's pay them first and then work our way down to the guys that that have been working the longest. And so he says, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Oh, now let me ask you a question. If you started at 6 a.m. that day, what are you thinking? I'm about to get paid. Like, 
This guy just paid the guys who worked for an hour a complete day's wage. Oh, baby. Like, call mama at home. We're having a party tonight. Like, it is, I'm going to buy a car. I'm going to buy that new vacation home. I'm like, he paid a guy who worked an hour, a full day. I'm getting paid today. That's what everybody in this room thinks. That's what you would think if you had started at 6 a.m. Oh, man, this is good stuff. It's not what happened. That would be a cruddy story if it ended that way. It says, now when those that hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last guys, they only worked an hour and you have made them equal to us. And so you need to underline that, circle it, put a star by it. We're going to come back to that. He says, you've made those guys equal to us. And we've been out here. We've borne the burden of the day. We've been here all day. It's scorching hot. You probably didn't give us a lunch break. I've drank very little water today. I've been just working hard. My hand, everything hurts on my body. And these guys get paid the same exact thing. Are you kidding me right now? Like, how would you feel about that? You'd feel the same way, wouldn't you? Let's just be honest. Like, I would feel the same exact way as these guys felt. And you know what is the heart of their complaint? Because they start grumbling here. Basically, they're trying to persuade this landowner. They're trying to talk to him and go, come on, man. I've been here all day. And he's not following, following for it. But, but here's what they're doing when they say they're equal to us. The, 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 the surface problem that's beginning to happen here is this issue of, of human comparison. Ah, oh, you've made them equal to us. So don't forget that. We're going to come back to it. You've made them equal to us. And look what happens next. The landowner says to them, hey, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? He's like, hey, man, we had a contract. We had an agreement. You agreed to come and and work for a denarius a day, I'm doing the right thing. I'm being fair to you. I'm keeping up my end of the deal. You're wanting to renegotiate it now. That's the problem. It's not with me. You're the problem. And so he just says, take your money and, and go. This is the deal. I'm not being unkind. I'm not being unfair. In fact, that word begrudge that's used here, if you take it back to the Greek, it, it really is the root word of, the, of, of, of envy. So, so a better way to say it is this landowner saying, not only do, do you, are you begrudging my generosity, he's like, are you envious of these other guys? Like, are you jealous? Are you envious of these other guys because they got paid the same amount but worked a whole lot less? Right? Here's the deal. It's human nature not to appreciate someone else being the recipient of generosity, there's not a person in this room right now that's probably happy for the guys that started at 5 p.m. And I would ask you, why not? Why not? That was again. I mean, what a great deal. This is fantastic. They got paid a day's wage for an hour's worth of work. And we're not happy for them because it's not human nature for us to be happy when someone else gets showered with generosity. Because as soon as you start 
looking at others, you become discontent. When you start comparing, it's this human comparison. Hey, you've, you've made them equal to us. They're comparing themselves to someone else. And so when you start to play that comparison game, that's when discontent comes in. And then Jesus, lastly, here's how he, he ends the parable with the paradox again. And so he says, hey, so I'll tell you this story to tell you, guys, the last will be first and the first Last, Jesus bookends the parable again with the paradox. So let's address what, what really is the surface problem that's happening here. Here's the, the surface problem. The surface problem is that the disciples and our problem with the issue of is God fair, is God just, just God's fairness and justice is that of human comparison and envy. And so let me define envy for you. Or, well, actually, let me give you some common scenarios. Here's why we do this, because we've all been the recipient of one of these scenarios, right? Like, you know what it's like to work and then someone else get the credit? You've done that, or you've worked just as hard as someone else, and they get more credit? Well, this happens a lot of times in the work environment when there's a team project and everyone's working. We've already addressed that kind of like in high school when you work on the group project. You've worked just as hard as someone else, but there's a manager, who's kind of like the team leader, and so they get called up to give the presentation, and everybody claps for that person, but you've done an equal amount of work. They just get more credit, or you work harder than someone else, and they get equal credit. I bet everybody in this room has been underneath one of these scenarios, and so here's what it causes us to do, because we've all been there, is that then we sympathize with the guys that were hired early on in the parable, Right, We sympathize with them, and we go, stand up for your rights. Stick it to the man. You just get more money out of him. Shake him till it starts to come out of his pockets. He's ripping you off. And here's what Jesus knew. You know why Jesus told the disciples this parable and by extension us? Because Jesus knew that instinctively you and I would root for the wrong side. We're rooting for the wrong team in the story. But that's our human nature. And it's okay. I'm I'm with you here. Silence always falls over the crowd because you realize it's true. Is it on the inside? Like we 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 were like, go get them, guys. Here's the definition of envy. A belief that others are getting what they do not deserve and we're not getting what we do deserve. Like we, we, we think we're like the first group. And so we're like, man, we work hard. And whether it's at our jobs or whether it's at school, in the classroom, or whether it's here with your volunteerism and, and service at church, it's like, man, we work hard and we toil all day in the hot sun and... Others around here, they do so little, but they get so much. And so what a, and it's this belief that other people are getting something better than we're getting. And so the surface problem is this human comparison and envy. But do you know what the root problem is? You know what's underneath that? Ultimately, our problem's not with other people. Our problem's with God. We might 
be upset with those other people, but instinctively, each one of us knows down deep inside that the guys who started at 5 o'clock, they didn't do any. I mean, what did they do? They just showed up. You can't be mad at them. You're mad at the owner. And so when Jesus is telling the story, the owner of the vineyard in the story is God, and you and I are the various workers that get hired at various times during the day. And ultimately, they're not mad at the guys who got paid. They're mad about it, but they're not mad at the guys who got paid at the end of the day. They're mad at the owner. See, the root problem is, is you and I are mad at God. We're mad at God because we think that he was better to someone else than he was to us. We think somebody else got the better deal. And when we don't get the great deal like the guys at 5 o'clock got the great deal, then, then we start to wonder, are we getting punished for something? Are we receiving God's justice right now while someone else is receiving the blessing? Because it's not instinctual for us to root for the people who get paid for very little work. And so let me answer the question, is God fair, with another question. Let me ask you this question. Why would you settle for the usual daily wage when God wants to give you whatever is right? See, that's the key to the story. See, most of us, we want the guaranteed thing. We want the contract, and so let's just shake on it, and you give me that, and we know what the stakes of the game are, and I'm here to tell you that God's like the landowner, and he wants to give you whatever is right. But so many of us want to settle for the daily wage. And that's why Jesus is telling us the story. Whatever is right, listen, whatever is right will always be more than fair. When, when the owner, when God says, I'm going to do by you whatever is right, you, you can take that to the bank. It's going to be better than the daily wage because it's going to be whatever is right. It's going to be better than you can ask. It's going to be better than you can imagine. And yet we most oftentimes we trust a wage-based life more than we trust grace. That's why Jesus is teaching us the story. And so if you're here today and you're having a hard time wondering if God is fair, and the, the problem really that you and I deal with on a human level is one of envy, then let me give you three quick things that I think at least will help, maybe be a cure for your envy. Here's the first one. Stop comparing yourself and your life to others. Stop comparing yourself and your life to others, right? This is what those guys were doing. Hey, we worked all day. These guys didn't work much. They're doing that human comparison thing. That's when envy sets in. That's when we become discontent, and now we've got a problem. In fact, me and some other guys at the church here are reading a book called The 12 Rules for Life by a guy named Jordan Peterson, and he has a rule in his book, and rule number four uh, is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. That's good. That should be in a book somewhere. 
So you see, if you're going to compare, don't compare yourself to someone else. If you want to play the comparison game, compare who you are today with who you were yesterday. Did I, make, did I make some improvement? Am I a better person today than I was yesterday? Not Don't compare yourself to someone else. Do you know how many games there are that you can play? There's the work game. There's the how athletic game am I compared to them? How handsome or beautiful am I compared to them? I mean, there's like all kinds. Why do you want to play all of those games? Stop playing the games. Just compare yourself to who you were yesterday. And if you're getting better, awesome. If you're not, fix it. But the cure for envy is not comparing your life to someone else's life. It's comparing your own life to your own life. Here's the second thing. Second thing is this. Refuse to compete in such a way that someone else has got to lose for you to win. Isn't that kind of the root of the story? That's why none of us are happy for those guys who started at five. <laughs> right? We want them to lose. It's not fair. And so here's what we have to do. We have to trust that in God's economy that there's enough for everyone. And so let's be happy for everybody. Maybe you're here today and you've been a Christ follower for a long time. Like 40 years, 50 years, you've been slugging it out. It's been a daily battle. You know what the reality is, is that somebody who's 89 years old, who has lived a life that you and I would put in a category of not very God-honoring, full of sin and all kinds of other stuff, can give their life to Christ. And you know what? We get the same reward, eternity in heaven. Don't play those games. God's got enough. Let's just be happy when someone else gets blessed. Let's be happy for others. And then here's the last thing, quickly. Let go of expectations based on what you think others deserve. You're not the judge. You don't get to decide what other people deserve. Let go of your expectations in that regard. Give God the freedom to pay whatever, he, whatever is right. Knowing that whatever is right is always better, that God's ways are not your ways, and whatever is right is always better. His ways are always better. So let's let go of our expectations and let God do what he wants to do and someone else's life, and don't fall into the comparison trap. Just imagine what it would be like if you and I, if everybody in here in this room and that was in our first service today would just let go of those things. If we would let go of comparison, if we would let go of competition, if we would let go of our expectation, can you imagine if we let go of those things, what would happen? Here's what would happen. Your life would be filled with God, and then you would make space for the life of another to be God-filled. And the world would be, as the parable tells us, a whole lot more like the kingdom of heaven. Is God fair? Absolutely. Because he always does whatever is right. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? Our band's going to come out onto the stage, and we're going to continue into worship and communion.
But before we get there, I just want to pray for us this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the study of Matthew that we've been in. We thank you for how it impacts us. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who was so wise to, to teach us, to instruct us. And, and God, he knew that we, all of us, the disciples then and, and us now, that we would wrestle with this issue of envy. And we serve a great God. God, we recognize that this isn't just about money. Yes, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, but God, you have ways of making money look silly. You can bless us in ways with health and prosperity and friendships that pale in comparison to a wage. And so if we're here today, any of us, that keep falling into the comparison trap, Lord, I just pray for that person that they would stop that. Lord, they would realize that it's not that. It's about their own personal faithfulness. And so, God, help us to not compare ourselves to others, but compare ourselves to ourselves. Are we getting better? Are we making progress? Are we growing closer to you? Lord, let us be happy for others when you choose to bless them. Let us rejoice. Lord, because we can trust, ultimately, whether it's on this side of heaven or one day with you in glory, that you will always do whatever is right. Father, I pray all of this in the name of your son Jesus who taught us this great principle. It's in his name we pray. Amen.